Sometimes interesting what happens when we suddenly remember something. And uh, I can feel myself just, just sort of waiting for the sort of the the words to begin to flow. And then just as they started to come, I noticed the uh, absence of the microphone. And is that, oh, I don't really need that. It'll be all right. But actually, it's probably good to record this. Well, actually, it's being recorded there, so it's not to do with the microphone. Um, but I hope it helps you hear clearly. Um, <coughs> those moments sometimes when we just suddenly... Oh, it's almost like the mind stops for a moment. We just suddenly click something, or something, we clock something, something clicks, we realize, oh, that's right. I need to take care of something. It's interesting how that can happen for us in different situations. We'll be very focused on one thing and not quite noticing something else. And uh, one of the ways that we are invited to engage here is to recognize the way in which our in a way our focus on mental activity and the way we're so often engaged with it and so fully engaged with it much of the time makes it harder or perhaps less likely for us to notice other elements of our experience and one of the consequences of the sort of the focus on mental activity as we notice perhaps or we can feel how much of our life is oriented towards a sense of knowing and understanding in a kind of conceptual way. And I'd like to speak this evening or to offer some reflections on what we could call the art of unknowing. This society, this world, this culture that we live in place has a lot of emphasis and a lot of uh, value on information. And we, you know, understand or sometimes talked about as the information age. We see that the power in information and of course it's true. A lot of what you know we call our education is to do with absorbing, learning to remember, to organise, to manipulate information, concepts, ideas. And it's something very beneficial. It can have a lot of ways in which it contributes to well-being. And yet, it can also be that the way in which we are oriented in this regard doesn't always serve us as deeply as perhaps some other elements of our life could if we were able to give them full care and attention. The um, I'm not sure who said it, probably someone wise, but it certainly uh, speaks to me then. You've probably heard the phrase, you know, what use is it to know how to put somebody on the moon if we don't know how to get on with our neighbours? And it's like there's a certain kind of knowledge and information we value. It's often to do with sort of productivity, doing things, perhaps even spectacular things. But the, the kind of knowledge that supports us in healthy and wholesome and kindly and supportive relationships with each other and with ourselves and with this world and our life, 
this is a different well this comes from something different this is sourced in a different way we can't figure this out or it's not like what we're doing here is something that we we could write down and hand out and you'd you know we could tell the answer and then you'd have it on a piece of paper and you could take it home and it would somehow change your life if if we could do it that way we would it would be a lot less trouble obviously but um it doesn't seem to work that way and so in many ways the spiritual journey we could say runs in a different stream and sometimes counter to much of the values and the orientation of our ordinary and familiar society and we can usefully contemplate the, the value, the power of not so much accumulating more knowledge, information and the ability to manoeuvre with it, but actually seeing what it is to step away from that orientation, to see what that might offer us, without rejecting it or judging it, because it has its place. Chang Tzu, the uh, Chinese philosopher and spiritual teacher, he once observed, or described it seems, an experience that he'd had. He said, I awoke from dreaming of being a butterfly. And then I wondered, am I a man who's just woken from dreaming of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly who's dreaming of being a man? And there's something I think quite, for me at least, quite lovely in that that question. It's like, if we just sometimes allow a little space into our assumptions and our habitual conclusions about what's happening, a whole sense of possibility opens. Suddenly things become a little softer, a little less sort of firm or rigidly defined. And... You know, these days we've been blessed with this rather lovely, sunny, cool weather. Well, cool in the evening and clear and uh, in the mornings and sunny and warm in the day. I think probably, like many of you, really enjoy just being outside. And sometimes when we relax and we, we're not sort of battling the elements as we might sometimes have to do, there's a way in which we're more open to the sense of how amazing it is that it's all here. The, the vastness of the night sky and the stars. I don't know if any of you spent any time sort of gazing last night or this evening already and the moon rising. Or the, as the sun goes down over the hills. and There's just a, a way in which this whole thing is going on and it's actually beyond us to know how it comes to be happening. You know, there's all kinds of stories we tell ourselves, socially, culturally, religiously, scientifically. But, you know, in the end, if we really look at it, the idea that some sort of great, powerful being sort of reached out and with a spark from their finger, bang, it all happened, isn't really that different than the idea that there was absolutely nothing and then suddenly there was a big explosion and it was all here which is the scientific version of the 
somewhat older traditional sort of religious version, at least in sort of Judeo-Christian culture. If we begin to allow ourselves to open to the the way we don't, or we can't really know how we even come to be here, how this world came to be, and so much of its workings, there's a kind of a humility that brings us that's really helpful, that's really important here. A humility that might be a little unsettling, but that also brings with it a sense of possibility and an invitation to exploring. One of the interesting things about, one of the interesting aspects about this quality of of not knowing is that it naturally calls forth our attention our interest, our engagement I was teaching a retreat a few, well uh, it was a few years ago now in, in Sweden actually um, in a, a lovely place in the uh, I'm not sure how to describe it it's sort of the islands but it seems like that whole part of the country is islands so maybe it's the islands um, and so the, the place to retreat was surrounded by a lot of water and sort of islands. I think it's probably an island itself, although we drove there, I guess, over bridges. And um, I don't think it has much to do with islands, but anyway, I'm just remembering trying to picture, <laughs> picture the story so I can tell it to you. Um, but one of the people on the retreat, a, a few days in, and, I, and, I, and I, it was in May, it was likewise sunny and cool, but at the other end of the season... One of the people reported that there was a, an adder down by the water, near the jetty. And a lot of people were kind of interested in saying, you know, of the staff, oh, there's, there's, there's an adder. And I was fascinated and kind of excited and interested. And I remember, because it, it was quite warm and lovely on the grass, I was walking barefoot outside. Then I thought, oh, go and see if I could find and see where the adder is. And I was walking down to look for the adder. I wasn't thinking about mindfulness or meditation or walking meditation or anything like that. I was thinking about, but I was as I was looking into this area, I was aware that probably I'm going to feel really silly if I get bitten by the snake. And yet I was really fascinated, really interested. I wanted to see it, and I just noticed at some point I was being incredibly mindful with every step. I was completely alert. There was no risk of being distracted. And it was like that sense of interest that comes from, some, there might be something here that I'm interested in. I'm not sure where it is. Very interesting how that brings a natural sense of attentiveness. Of course, one could ascribe that to the potential danger of the, uh, of the snake equally. And yet, interesting, I was just walking outside in the dark just now um, before coming in and there was a sign which I couldn't read out under the tree. Some of you might have seen it. Um, just over there, near, near the big oak. And I was looking, oh, it says, I read very carefully, it says, Beware. <laughs> Wasp nest in ground. And it's like, okay, in which direction? Because it's dark, I couldn't really see. And again, it's like, the first response is, Beware. And it's, it's like, that's trying to scare me. But actually, be wary, be aware. Oh. Okay, I don't know where this is. 
I'm going to guess it's on the other side of the sign because it wouldn't be much point putting it once you've already gone over this thing, putting a sign saying, you know, good luck, you've just stepped on a washing You know, run that way. Um, but again, just that sense of, just even as the words start to form out of the, 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 sort of the hazy darkness, you realize, oh, actually something that needs to ta- be taken care of here or to be careful to be full of care. And I think there's a natural sense of care that comes when we're not in a place of familiarity and the habitual and kind of casual inattention that that generates. When we kind of feel, yeah, I know what's here, I know what's going on, I know what to do and how to do it. Because that whole attitude easily leads to a kind of going to sleep. And yet when we're a little, when we're allowing ourselves a little uncertainty, a little unsurety, to not really know in that way, to not be sort of sitting in our stories and our concepts and ideas, but coming more into the body's experience of walking and being present. And the body doesn't know anything in advance in that sense. It's, it's there, sensitive, alive, and can have its own recognition of what's going on through the through the sensitivity of it. But it's it's not sort of habitual and unconscious in that. And so we can we can start to see perhaps that there's a a sensitivity that only becomes available to us when we're not making assumptions that we already know what is here and what is happening and what the step or this breath or this moment will bring. One of the primary orientations we notice in our minds and in our lives that has to do is this the sense of time that we feel and we experience and believe as a as a solid, as a substantial, as an absolute thing that we're kind of somehow here journeying forward in time. And that the sense that that gives rise to for us is a kind of looking into the future, looking away from where we are, to somehow try and, on the basis of our knowledge of the past, anticipate what hasn't yet come. And the sense of, of past and future can seem so real to us. But they're really something we construct. There's something that we seem to carry with us. The, the sense of past is not really the past. The interesting thing about it is that we only have a few fragments preserved in our memory of what took place in the past. If we were to actually remember something that happened fully, it would take as long to go through the experiences it took to have it. When we think we remember something, we're just remembering a few fragments of it. 
a few remembered images, impressions that have touched us, that have impacted us, perhaps sweetly or perhaps in a way that's challenging. And we somehow project that into the future as if this is what could come to be. And it's very limited and two-dimensional. We have no other basis for imagining our future apart from some kind of association from the past that we adapt or adjust in some way and imagine in front of us. That's the only way we can do it. And there's something that's unreal about it and unfulfilling because it isn't actually there in the way we imagine it to be. And so, this realm of, 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 of knowledge involves the creating and the constructing of the sense of past and future that feels sometimes so substantial, so real. And this is not to suggest in any way that, of course, the impact of the past is in some way itself insubstantial or illusory. Of course, no, we need to take care with regard to that. But we do so in the present, where we are. And equally, it's not to suggest that the future is somehow something to disregard. Because, of course, we need to take care of that. None of us would have got here without being able to think about the possibility of coming here and sitting down for this talk. I wouldn't have got here, you wouldn't have got here. So it's not to um, dismiss or reject the functionality of that way of orienting. But to understand that it is a construct. And that the effect, when we live in terms of that and believe it to somehow be absolute, is profound. And one of the ways that we notice it when we're in a retreat, in fact, we could notice it equally anywhere, but it perhaps stands out a little more clearly here, is that sense of time gives rise to this perception of duration. That's kind of what, the way we talk about it in, in the English language. And, and duration leads to the sense of enduring. That sense of, it's hard work to sustain this experience or to be in a situation where it's challenging. And the, the whole process of trying to take hold of experience, to try and possess it, to try and keep it, is based in a projection in time. The idea that somehow there's something I can do within this fluid matrix of my life as it's expressing itself right now. There's something I can do that can preserve it and turn it into something that's a sort of a, a portable object I can take with me. Now, we don't usually think that kind of a thought. Oh, I think I'll take this fluid matrix of experience and turn it into a portable object so I can take it home and tell my friends about it. But very quickly, we do have thoughts that suggest that underlying is the belief this is possible. And, you know, as someone was saying in one of the, um, <coughs> one of the groups this morning, that sense of some really quite touching and significant and 
much appreciated experience opening in this person's practice and then noticing the sense of kind of taking hold of it like I've got it it's mine I'm here and that having in it an immediate sense that this will be something that continues in time that's what that sense of taking hold of it involves and of course as soon as that happens that quality and the the richness of that experience collapses, disappears, <coughs> it's gone. It's like we try and grasp at water. And we're left holding nothing. And likewise, we sometimes find difficult experiences arising in body and heart and mind, and we resist. We, it's like, no, I don't want to experience this. And yet, if we look and see this very human and, in a way, understandable response, if we look underlying it, there's often the sense, not that I can't, or when we say, you know, I don't want to, or I can't bear or put up with this experience. In fact, if you look, we see, oh, the interesting thing is, we're already bearing this experience. It's already happening. We're here. We've survived it already. But what we fear and what we think we can't do is its continuance. That sense of continuity of the difficult is so often the larger component of why we struggle with it. The sense that if I don't do something about it, it will continue. And it's often this that feels unbearable. And when we can actually just come into the present which and into the immediacy, which means... Letting go of that conceiving of me in time with this experience. just It's just this and it's here and it's now. And there's something that's possible about it already because it's already happening and we're here. And we see these ideas of sort of development and progress that are often dependent on time and measurement and the ways that which we can... we that with Time and measurement, again, there's sort of like any kind of quality that we start to measure in order to compare sets us up for getting into a sense of success and failure, which is so, again, strong for us. We kind of want to know how we're doing. We want to have some idea, is my sort of concentration, or is my loving kindness, or is my insight, is it going along well enough? Is this kind of about, is about where it should be by now? And so many people, and again, understandable, kind of sweet in a certain way, in talking about their experience, one gets a sense that the basic question is, well, this is what's happening. Is it okay? Is it all right that it's like this here? And, you know, a lot of... I mean, it, I don't want to say it's the whole thing, but a lot of what I find myself as a role is being able to say, actually, yeah, it's okay like that. Yeah, it can, it can happen like that. You know, it happens like that sometimes. And the evidence is right in front of both of us, because if it's happening like that for you, then it happens like that for human beings, sometimes because you're a human being, and this is one of those times. 
Now, I know the logic in that might seem a little bit too shockingly simplistic, but it's actually remarkably powerful. But why we don't always see that and get that is because we're somehow in this process of thinking about our experience, wanting to measure it, wanting to compare it, wanting to evaluate it. And we see that we're caught up in this, we're engaged by this, we're compelled by this, it seems, because we take that experience and whatever measurement we're attributing to it, like that's a lot or not so much, and then whatever value we're placing, a lot, oh, that's good, lots of um, calm, that's good, or lots of confusion, that's not good, or and not very much, not very much pain, that's definitely good. <laughs> not very much mindfulness, oh, that's not so good. So we see, we measure, and then we evaluate. And it happens like this. And then, we don't just stop there with the experience. We say, I am not very mindful and a rubbish meditator. We create a story. Or, oh, I'm really mindful and present and I'm doing great. <laughs> and I'm actually, you know, we wouldn't necessarily have the thought, I'm a great meditator, but we might think, oh, I think I'll sign up for another retreat. <laughs> or maybe I'll do a long one. And then within a moment or two, the mind sort of flickers into a story of the future and we imagine, you know, having shaved our head, and put on brown robes in a monastery in Asia and retired to the cave and then we start to imagine a few people coming, you know, bringing food and offerings and there's a sort of bow coming out of the cave and it's sort of like, it's just, it was just a moment of steadiness, clarity, presence. And lovely, wonderful, why not? But we took hold of it. We made a story out of it. And then we realised what we've done. And we go, oh no. <laughs> I'm hopeless, I can't do this. Look at that. Just a whole fantasy story. And we were a moment ago, we were planning to become a lifetime meditator. It's like, I'm going home. This is no good. This doesn't work. I can't do it. I'm out of here. And in another moment, we've taken this experience, which is, I got lost for a moment. We've made a story out of it. We've decided it's not okay. We've said, that's my meditation career in the rubbish tin. In exactly the same process. A story, a conceiving of me. And, you know, the funny thing is that, of course, we know that, we see, we can recognise it's painful or unpleasant, but somehow it's really compelling. Because we want to know how we're doing. We need some, it seems like we rely on or we're depending upon some reassurance. Even if the process of seeking it is fraught with complication and distress. So, with regard to this question that perhaps is there for us all as to how we're doing, um, <clears throat> story I like to tell about uh, a retreat that's being taught in um, California by Jack Cornfield, one of the sort of elders of our tradition. And uh, Jack came into the staff room one evening and one of the staff asked after one of the participants on the retreat a few days in, maybe it was the third night, and uh, said, Jack, can you tell me how my friend is doing? And Jack said, oh, my friend's doing really well. 
very well. Mm. I'm happy to hear that. I asked about, oh no, this other person, how are they? Oh, they're doing very well also. And a second staff member overhearing asked about their friend. Oh, your friend, yeah, they're doing very well. And they, they looked at Jack and one of them said, Jack, can you tell us what do you mean by doing very well? Jack smiled. He said, oh, they're still here. <laughs> so if you've been wondering how you're doing, <laughs> the answer is perhaps more simple. And yet it's not easy for us to really trust in that hereness, is it? In that nowness. We want something that we can take forward and sort of that comes with a certificate to show our friends or something like that. And this isn't available here. And that's actually a good thing. But it's a little unsettling, it's a little uncomfortable to have less of a story, to be making less of a position for me. To just say, I don't know where I'm at quite right now. Not in a kind of, not in terms of the sort of the doubt or the sceptical undermining, oh, you know, you don't know where you're at sort of voice that we might hear that would be maybe an expression of that quality of of doubt that we, we understand as a hindrance, as, as Leela was speaking about in the instruction this morning. That sense of undermining. But more that sense of, oh, maybe I don't need to have such a fixed story or definition about myself. The present moment experience is something fluid. It keeps changing. Have you noticed? It keeps changing. It's not something that just happens because you're on a meditation retreat and it's designed to make that happen. No. That's what's always been happening. In a meditation retreat, it's designed, amongst other things, so we might notice that that's happening. That the experience is fluid and whenever we try and take hold of a sense of I am defined by this, it kind of that sense of wanting to know who I am, defined by what's happening, by my success or my failure, by my delightful or dismal experience or whatever it might be. We're flying in the face. Or we're fighting against the current of life, which is fluid and not subject to being fixed and packaged in a box that can be known in those terms because the knowing is always from the past. And it is a little tricky for us to find our ground in this. But as I was saying before with that sense of when we don't know it, it brings another quality. It's like if we're not sure about how firm the ground will be under our feet. And I've crossed frozen lakes in the mountains. And there's a... I mean, one time I fell in. A um, little bit embarrassing, really. I wasn't going to tell you that story. But uh, the ice broke. And I got it. The short version is it was lucky. I didn't go 
all the way under. That might not have been so good. But I remember the steps I took afterwards. This was before I'd ever heard of meditation. <coughs> it was like really being mindful, because I wasn't sure how solid this ice was. I'd been testing it with the ice axe for quite a while. And at some point I got complacent and decided, ah, it's solid. This is really solid. If it was good back there, it's going to be solid here. And it wasn't. But it was just a little place where that happened. And I later understood that there'd been a stream running in very strong from the edge. And even though 100 yards, 100 metres from the edge as I was, there was a fissure in the ice caused by the strength of the current. But that way in which once we think we know, we sort of switch off and go to sleep. Is a lot of what we deal with here. Because we live in the thought, in the story, in the idea, and from there it looks like it's fine to be asleep. But once we start to get some sense that actually what's coming is new and never has happened before like this ever, and will probably never again appear in this way, then suddenly our attention again is more naturally called forth. And I, I remember once going to a, um, a social gathering at a friend's place. It was quite a, a number, I think there was going to be about 50, 60 people there. And there was someone there who I kind of wanted to meet. Or, yeah, I was interested to meet because they were kind of important and I'd sort of heard about them, but I'd never met them. I didn't know what they looked like. They were the editor of Tricycle, the, one of, a sort of a Buddhist um, sort of a, a magazine that is quite well known. And um, anyway, the editor of this magazine was going to be at the meeting, at the gathering, and I noticed myself. All I knew was the person's name, Helen Torkoff, and I noticed every time I met someone, well, actually particularly the women, it was, it was like maybe this is her. And the sense of, not that I wouldn't ordinarily have been, you know, polite, respectful, interested. I'm sure I would have been. But I really noticed the heightened sense of, oh, maybe it's this person. And it wasn't. And I didn't actually meet her. <laughs> as far as I can tell, anyway. Unless I managed to do it with that. I didn't sort of ask everyone, hello, are you, you know. Um, but it was just a very interesting experience to feel myself in a place where I recognize there's something here that I'm interested in and I don't know how to find out or how to know what that is. If I had a picture, I'd been looking. If I had someone who could introduce me, I'd have said, hey, find that person, you know, someone who knew them, but I didn't. And that sort of engagement has a, it has a frisson to it that's actually very alive. There's something about it that's very sort of it just kind of even as I feel myself I, I didn't realise that breathing in and opening the eyes it's like it's sort of like like there's almost an eagerness that can come which isn't about something distant from but about just opening being really open being really ready for what's here and it requires us to to begin to be at ease with what also comes. Because, you know, it's kind of awkward if there's something important we'd like to know. Like, it was a bit awkward for me also in that gathering. You know, what if I do something really silly or embarrassing and it turns out to be this was the person I, I, I wanted to meet? You know? 
Um, Voltaire observed once, he said, Uncertainty is no doubt an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. <laughs> and so there's something about this invitation here to, to let ourselves be a little, to begin to inhabit the land of less certainty, the world of just leaving a certain amount of space, a question open, okay, maybe there's more here to see, to discover, that I maybe this breath. Sometimes it gets kind of boring, doesn't it? Breath. I've seen, seen a few of these breaths. You know, if you've been doing this for decades, you've seen really quite a few of these breaths. And even if you've just done it for three days, that might be as many breaths as you think you could really be bothered to see. You know? And yet, one only just needs to contemplate that, oh, you know, these breaths? One day, that out breath's going to go out. <laughs> <laughs> and that in-breath isn't going to come in. It's just going to happen like that for most of us. The out-breath will go out. It does end on an out-breath. That's reliable. The in-breath won't come in. And you know, the interesting thing is that out-breath won't come with a little sign that says, hey, this is it, this is the last one. Or well, maybe it will, but I don't think so. And it's like, Actually, every day, people have an outbreath, not knowing that it might be their last one. So if I didn't take that next in-breath for granted, I might be really interested. Once the out-breath has gone out and things have just gone a little bit quiet, that little pause. <laughs> like, hmm, what's going to happen here? Wow, hey, here it comes, yeah! You know, but we don't generate, it's like, oh, another in-breath. <laughs> And yet this miracle is happening, it's been happening and happening. And again, that opening to a sense of uncertainty brings something in which we become closer. We become... There's different elements of what we can talk about when we talk about opening. Some of the opening is the way in which we're inhabiting the felt bodily experience more consciously with sensitivity, with kindness, with care. And we notice in that that the patternings of contraction and tightness in the body begin to soften, begin to open. And there's a sense of a, an, an increasing receptivity and an ability to receive. To receive. And Together with that and supporting that and supported also by that process of that, that kind of bodily softening and opening, this process also of the mind being invited to soften and open similarly. The certainties we have, the assumptions and the presumptions and the beliefs we hold on to in our mind are another kind of sort of defensive protective armoring or structure that we try and keep ourselves secure and safe within. But just as in the physical expressions, which as we feel, we see they're uncomfortable and they're limiting. 
so too the belief structures, the certainties, the absolute solidity of the ways we conceive our life and the world and ourself. Although they may give some sense of security when explored, when felt into, we start to see, in fact, they're painful because they're constructive, they're limiting. And, in fact, imprisoning. And so just as with the body, we don't say, hey, you've got to let go, because it doesn't work. Or stop holding, it's bad, it's not judging. It's more like, notice, let myself feel those places of tightness or contraction. And with the mind, it's more, I'm just starting to notice, oh look, I just somehow am certain that tomorrow is going to come. Now, I think it's highly likely tomorrow is going to come. I think the odds are there. I've you know, even had the odd thought about what I'll have for breakfast. But just holding the space for, oh, it's not guaranteed. Bring something very rich into the, the field of our practice. And we might notice when we're listening, we hear sound. And we're, we're, we're practicing with this, we can just hear a sound. Some sounds we can just hear. And some sounds there's a sense of, I want to know who is making the sound. <laughs> now, what we need to know that for, it's like it's, the sound is going to be the same. It doesn't really matter who's making it. But the mind gets busy wanting to know who's making it. Sometimes that's because then I can know who to avoid or who I should sort of look at or maybe who I should get to make friends with because maybe I'm enjoying the sound that they're making. But it's hard for us to stay at the bare experience, that sense of wanting to have a story to go with it. Or the, you know, the, I think probably there will be hundreds if not Everyone who comes to Guy House who at some point in the process of hearing the sound of the, the rocks starts thinking, are they rocks? Are they crows? And that sense of, what, what kind of bird am I listening to? But the sound, whether it's we enjoy it, if it's a sweet songbird or a, a sort of a, a harsh croak, whether we enjoy it or not, the sense of wanting to know and somehow locate it and place it within a matrix So far as we can become aware of that tendency, because of course we do that to ourselves all the time. And by noticing how we do it in all directions, we also start to notice that actually we don't have to do that in such a solid, such a heavy, or such a kind of constraining way. That we can start to just be curious. Oh, if I don't know or presume I know what that is, how does it affect me? It might feel a little unsettling. It might feel a little like I'm on shaky ground. But there might also be a sense of something that opens up. The Buddha spoke of this quality of curiosity, of interest. 
as a quality of heart and mind that's essential in the journey of awakening. And in fact, once when he was asked, which of the particular factors that lead to the awakening of the human heart, which is most proximate to that opening, to that flowering? And his response was, it's this quality. Investigation, curiosity, exploration, that sense of looking with fresh eyes. And that is what arises, what comes when we allow ourselves to remember that we don't already know what's happening in all the ways it can be known. That there are more ways of knowing, more ways of understanding, more ways of encountering this life that's happening right here. And so much of it is beyond explanation. So much of it is beyond knowing. When I was first travelling in Asia, I, uh, I kind of, in a relatively random way, ended up on a meditation retreat, not quite knowing what I'd got myself into, and uh, having finished it, not quite knowing what the heck had just happened. <laughs> I had the, the vague sense that I think I should do some more of that. Um, and I went to look for a, <coughs> a teacher that I'd heard lived in the town where I was, I was going to Calcutta. My grandmother is Bengali, and I was hoping to find her and meet her for the first time. And... Um, there was a teacher that was there. I, was, I found the name and I thought, I'll see if I can find this person. And having gone and, I mean, the whole story of meeting my grandmother, which was rather amazing, um, in my, my mid-twenties. Um, but I then went to try and find this teacher and I was told at the place where he stayed, no, he's gone, he didn't tell us where he's gone or how long he's gone for. So I gave up on that and I, I looked up another place where there was a retreat and I went to another retreat and through the course of the retreat there was... Um, there was a chap sitting at the front who wasn't the teacher, but he didn't look like one of the other students, so we were all white. And at the end of the retreat, he came up to me and gave me a card, and he said, come and see me. And I have to confess, my first response was, why do I want to come and see you? <laughs> and I looked at the card, and it was Manindra. This was the name of the teacher I'd been looking for. And sometimes in a moment like that, all one sense of how the world works just kind of goes somehow, inexplicably, I'd gone looking for someone and failed to find them, and somehow, this person having clearly never even heard of me, somehow found me. And when we're more open, when we allow ourselves to be open to that somewhat more mysterious and I want to say inexplicable entirely because, of course, it's not that there aren't causes and conditions that give rise to things that happen. And clearly, I was becoming interested in meditation, so encountering a meditation teacher can't have been entirely an accident. But it certainly didn't happen according to my arrangement and planning and organisation. But there's a way in which we become open to the path that life has for us. 
when we give a little bit of room to the ideas we have about what that should look like, how that should be, how that should feel. And we need to hold those places in ourselves that can be fearful, that can perhaps be not quite sure if it's okay, with a lot of kindness to really invite ourselves, as one might, a younger human being into a realm that one is familiar with, someone who doesn't know the realm, to say, yeah, come along, it's okay, I know this place. Not the sense of I know the future or what's going to happen, but that somehow about this present moment, this place, we can get to know, not in the sense of knowledge, but in the sense of our abiding in it, in an openness, in a condition of openness that not, is not constrained or defined by the conceiving and the thinking and the stories and the images of our minds, but that emerges out of our life and out of this life itself that is here. And there's something remarkable in this, very ordinary, and at the same time, so touching. So I'd like to finish with a a quote from another of my teachers, Sajan Sachito, who's an English Buddhist monk who I first also met first in India. And he, uh, he gave a talk at the retreat I was attending. And, uh, I'd like to share this with you. He said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going. Past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control in the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life.
But may we all, here in our practice together, and in our lives, may we come to rest more deeply in the, the openness and vastness of possibility that this moment and this life offers. May we come to come to trust in this journey of opening and of awakening into the fullness and the vastness of life. for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.